Welcome to the 194th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of art in the pandemic with artist Heather Schulte, creator of the Stitching the Situation project. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 23, 2020, there are 1,725,311 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 78,437,021 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 324,905 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 320,864 reported yesterday. Just staggering numbers right now, coast to coast. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, She Was Special and She Cared, Loss of Beloved Art and Music Teacher Leaves Void. This appeared December 5th in NBC News by Ethan Sachs. Melinda Relig, an art and music teacher in Clarksville, Indiana, had already prepared this year's batch of Christmas presents for her family before she died last month of COVID-19. The gifts she gave as an annual tradition, a mix of store-bought and handmade, were purchased and created with thought and precision, including her paintings, which were based on a shared memory with the recipient. Family members in Indiana and South Carolina look forward to unwrapping them every year. She put her heart into it, and it just makes you smile because you know how much she cares about you and loves you, said Alexandra Relig, Melinda's half-sister. I think it's going to be hard to open them this year. I don't know if I want to open them or not because it's bittersweet. Relig would have turned 38 on December 6th, another bittersweet marker in a holiday season full of them. She, di she died on November 15th, one week after first developing a fever, apparently hiding the full extent of her condition from her loved ones as she struggled with racking coughs and ragged breathing over the next few days. She avoided a trip to the hospital because she was unsure if her insurance would cover the costs, family members said. I didn't know how bad she was during the week because she didn't call me, said her mother, Victoria Straub, a traveling nurse who works with COVID-19 patients and was out of town most of that week. If I would have known, I would have driven home and driven her to the hospital myself. When Straub went to check on her daughter on November 15th, she found Relic struggling to breathe and called 911. Relic died in the ambulance before the results of her COVID-19 test taken three days earlier came back, Straub said. When I got sick, she'd always come over and cook and take care of me. 
said her boyfriend, Tim Tatum, who did not see much of Relig after the school year began because as caretaker to his 88-year-old mother, he needed to prevent possible virus exposure. But she wasn't the type of person to complain when she wasn't feeling well. The family prefers not to think about the last seven days of Relic's life. They would rather focus on the 1,979 weeks that preceded it. Born on December the 6th, 1982 in Scotland, where her father James was stationed with the U.S. Navy, Relic displayed her musical flair early on. Straub remembers a fateful drive to her own parents' home when the family moved back to the U.S. She was singing in the car and had perfect pitch, said Straub, a former choir singer. She was just two or three years old at the time, and I just appreciated her. From the get-go, she could hear that pitch. There are so many kids that can't. No one in the family was surprised when she gravitated toward her high school marching band or when she took her trumpet and passion with her to the University of Louisville, where she majored in music. When Relic wasn't making music, she was immersed in art, providing as deft, proving as deft with the paintbrush as she was with her instrument. In college, Relic became interested in teaching those skills. Relic's first student may have been her younger sister, Alexandra Relic, who looked forward to the times when their father would take her to see the marching band. After earning a master's in music, Relic moved to Charlestown, Indiana, then to Washington State before returning to Indiana near her mother's home in Clarksville. When her music teaching position at the public school where she worked was cut, Relig approached Rock Creek Community Academy, a new K-12 charter school in nearby Sellersburg that did not yet have a music program. Principal Sarah Hauselman hired her to teach art. You can't say this about very many teachers. Nobody's perfect. Everybody doesn't do everything right but I never saw a kid that did not want to be in her class and didn't love it once they got in it, Hasselman said. Whatever they could do, she just would encourage them. Relig taught choir when she could, often before or after school, and provided a sounding board for her students, said Carrie Walls, a former student who learned the saxophone and perseverance in her classroom. She changed my life, said Walls, who graduated from Rock Creek in 2018 and is studying psychology at Purdue University. We always knew we could go to Mrs. R and she would have our backs. She really just gave me that foundation that this may not be the best situation right now, but it will get better. She taught me to keep up the fight. Relic's family is especially proud of that legacy as a teacher. She was special and she cared, Straub said. Relic is survived by her mother, stepfather, and step-siblings in Indiana, and her father, stepmother, half-sister, brother, and two nieces who she doted on in South Carolina. As Christmas approaches, Relig's loved ones said they will celebrate her life as best they can. Tatum plans to buy a Christmas tree in her honor that he will decorate, a tradition that meant a lot to her. I hope she can look down and see that, and it'll make her happy that she was able to get a, that she was able to get me to buy one, he said. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and introduce my guest to you, Heather Schulte. And Heather, am I pronouncing the right the last name correctly? Schulte, yeah. Okay, great. Heather Schulte is an interdisciplinary artist who lives in Boulder, Colorado. Her work combines analog textile materials and techniques with digital material 
and design processes, analyzing the intersection of personal and public forms of language and communication. She received her BFA from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2003. She has exhibited at numerous galleries and contemporary art spaces, including Redline Contemporary Art Center in Denver and Woman Made Gallery in Chicago. Her work has been featured in publications such as Fiber Art Now and the Surface Design Journal. Heather Schulte, thank you so much for making time to join me right on the eve of Christmas Eve here on COVID Calls. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really honored to be part of the group of people you've been speaking with. Well, I'm really happy to continue this discussion about art and memorial today, and particularly apt given where we are right now in this crushing second wave, which is going to inspire a new wave, probably, of artistic projects and memorial projects. So um, before we jump into that, I'd like to just find out um, where you're calling from and how it is looking there in terms of the pandemic today. I'm calling from Boulder, Colorado. Um, as far as last time I checked, our numbers have been pretty steady for the last week or two. Um, definitely in a another peak, but not quite as bad as some of our surrounding states. Um, the governor's been pretty, uh, not strict necessarily, but definitely on top of things and encouraging the public to stay home and practice social distancing and wearing masks, even if there's not an entire mandate everywhere in the state. Most of the state has got a mandate somewhere. So it's definitely hard. <laughs> um, but I feel they're doing what they can. Uh, I know there's another round of funding going out locally for businesses and such like that from our state, which is helpful. Now, I think of Colorado as a state quite like Pennsylvania where I work and that it has um, urban areas, very rural areas, and then a pretty broad ideological spectrum. I suppose mm -hmm. Boulder is more on the liberal side of that. That's where the university is and center of arts, one of the art centers. And, in the state. Has have the politics very, been very tense there? Has it been, you've seen that kind of pushback, backlash that we've seen in so many other parts of the country? I mean, there's definitely been um, <laughs> instances for sure. I mean, uh, the Black Lives Matter um, things this summer were pretty uh, visible, I will say. Um, more so in Denver, uh, we went down to Aurora for some of the vigils and um, protests there, which were pretty intense, but not quite as intense as like Portland or that sort of thing, but definitely um, present and very importantly so. As far as COVID goes, um, I haven't seen too much really visible um, backlash against protocols and such like that. I know there's been some, uh, what are they called? Uh, allowances or what have you um, from different for different cities and different specific uh, in institutions or maybe churches or whatever that kind of thing. Um, we have a little crew that shows up on uh, Saturdays, I believe. They've been coming. I think it started sometime this summer or spring. I'm not exactly sure, but little flag waving Trump supporters on one quarter. And then on the other corner, you have like the counter protesters. And mm -hmm. sometimes there's the guy like running around in some crazy outfit because it's bolder. <laughs> Just to keep it a little light. Third party. Third party. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Or okay. no party and just, you know, unicorns, who knows? <laughs> yeah. So, but I haven't seen any um, violence as far as those clashes. It's been uh, pretty above, I don't know, it seems civil, I guess. You know, everybody's expressing their rightful, uh, yeah, <laughs> opinions, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. I ask you so. about that because, you know, part of your work uh, as an artist and I, and through this year is very much about, I think meeting people where they are and engaging them, you know, great art sort of allows people to find themselves in it. Doesn't take a litmus test of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, but you, you and other artists this year really put yourselves out there in a time in which we've been fighting over things people might ordinarily not expect us to be fighting about. Yeah. Um, I have a, I would say multifaceted background in history. Like my mom's from New York city. My dad's from Alabama. Her parents were immigrants. His parents, a couple of generations back were immigrants. At least his dad was, um, my parents, my mom worked for the government and the civil engineers, Corps of engineers. And my mm. dad worked, he was in air force. Uh, let's see. Lieutenant Colonel when he retired. Um, my husband was in the Air Force for nine years. He's a dentist. That's how he got his training, you know? So it's like kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and I still talk to all my family members. <laughs> Good for you. You know, um, no one's said or done anything that's been unreasonable. I can usually have a dialogue with people, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. So um, not always. I mean, when I was a teenager. <laughs> Well, my dad, yeah, my dad will fine. definitely attest to that one, <laughs> but yeah. Well, let's talk about the work a little bit. And, and before we talk about what you've been doing this year, I actually wanted to, um, I'm really fascinated uh, with textiles as a medium and your particular intervention in that um, is, is fascinating as well. But I wanted to ask you if you could say a little bit about the kinds of themes that have influenced you before this year, because I'm wondering if, if, you've been particularly sensitive or attuned to the kinds of themes around memorial and suffering, loss, solidarity, community, that we're all trying to make sense of this, this year. Was that something that was already percolating in, in your work before? Yeah, it was, it was definitely present. Um, I have a somewhat difficult history with some medical issues myself and have been on the brink of death, even though I wasn't conscious at the time. I learned about that later. Um, and so the understanding that grief is an ever-present reality, um, the understanding that our life is precarious and vulnerable, um, having been in multiple countries, um, having backgrounds that involve uh, different types of like spiritual approaches to life theologies, if you will. Um, and just seeing all these different perspectives all existing at once and how some of that is embedded in the language that we use. And we're not really necessarily conscious of it unless we take the time to really think about it um, and seeing how language is weaponized and how that inf influences and in, in, um, is part of like our political dialogue, if you want to call it dialogue <laughs> right now. Ideologue is what I 
I yeah. like to call it. More. Right. Um, I die a lot. What I don't know. Anyway, make up a new word some other time. And so those kinds of conflict, not necessarily always conflict, but the complexities that are present. Um, it likes to be framed as a, com a conflict because it's mm. much easier to say this versus that. As opposed to understanding that if you look more closely, it's way more complex, you know, like not every Republican is extremely right wing, not every Democrat is extremely progressive or if what's the favorite one, uh, communist, mm -hmm. socialist, what have you, you know what I mean? Right. There's a spectrum. Um, and that spectrum isn't just linear either. It, it, you know, it's intersectional with all sorts of other thoughts, identities, backgrounds, experiences, and those kinds of complexities are things that I want to bring to the fore and to have um, people consider when they, like I've, I have a series of newspaper um, front pages that I stitch on top of trying to com complexify, if you will, the information that's there. Um, and a lot of those, well, those do use, I, I overlap, um, the text with coded, binary coded messages, which you can decode if you want to, <laughs> um, that have to do with the themes that are present in those articles or what have you. So it's like adding more um, information at the same time as obscuring other information and just trying to highlight the fact that this, all of this is much more complex than we usually have time or space to consider let alone discuss. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that what you're describing here and what you said a minute ago about life and the precarity of life and the vulnerability of life, which is, is hard to convey in binaries, as you were saying. It's, it's, you know, if you're right or left or if you're wrong or right. And even with the pandemic and so many of the ways that we have tried to make sense of it you know even the statistics i read at the top of the program every day you know did people die or not i mean that that's a valuable piece of information absolutely mm -hmm. but it captures only one part of the much bigger reality that we're all sharing at this time it sounds like from what you're describing getting into those layers of thinking and emotion that's stuff you'd already been working on previous to this year Yep. Yeah. But I mean, like, how do we even categorize what's right and what's wrong? You know, where do those boundaries fall and who decides where those boundaries are? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just a question that you pull the thread and then you just keep on going forever. You can kind of get lost. <laughs> well, tell me if you will, when the first time that the COVID-19 entered your consciousness, if, if you remember. Sure. Um, so I had some pieces in a show in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, that's where my parents live. So I was really excited because I'm like, mom and dad, I have a show in your neighborhood. You can actually come without having to like, you know, get a plane ticket somewhere else and whatever. Um, and so I went there in, I believe it was the very beginning of March. And I remember planning, I'm like, oh, is this going to continue to happen? You know, is it going to be possible? The airport was dead, <laughs> which is never a thing at DIA in Denver, it's always humming. Um, and I don't, I should have used a different word there now that I think of it. Anyway, <laughs> it was very quiet. There are very few mm -hmm. people there. Um, so I went to Alabama thinking this might be the last time I fly for a while. 
Um, and at that point in time, it was pretty, and you know, the COVID was in the news, but it wasn't like, ah, this is, this is a very serious deal here. It's like, it was still kind of over there. Um, maybe it was in Washington, I think at that point in time. And thankfully I got to visit a lot of my family at that point in time, including my uncle, um, who had just moved to a veterans, excuse me, a veterans facility there in Alabama. And so, um, came back from that and I think my parents flew here and we got to see my daughter's uh, theater show that she was doing at um, her high school, which was really fun. She's in the behind the scenes tech. Great. Um, I think they got two performances of the four or five in before school was shut down. Um, I think my parents changed their tickets to come back home a little early because they were nervous about the air flight travel being banned pretty quickly. Uh, after school shutting down. And then at that point it was like, okay, this is going to be hard and you know, we'll get through it. And then that was just the beginning. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I was working on a, a piece at that point in time um, that I finished up and then it was just kind of, I had a few days of just doing nothing or more just kind of like adjusting to my kids are home. We're not going back after spring break. Um, what are we going to do? How long is this going to last? Do I need to go buy food? Do I, like, mm -hmm. do I right. need to somehow clear some space in the garage or something? I don't know for another refrigerator. Like, I don't even know. I had plenty of toilet paper. So because <laughs> by that point it was pretty much gone <laughs> in the stores. <laughs> all those logistical questions were crowding in for all of us at that, at right. that time. It's interesting. You said, I share that, um, that experience slightly differently, but the, that sort of realization that travel plans were going to look different because for many of us, if we're thinking ahead, I mean, we might be thinking about the scale of our mortgage or child mm -hmm. going to high school, something like that. But most of us are thinking about getting to the end of the day, or we're thinking about an upcoming trip, something like that. And to start realizing that people are going to either not be coming to visit you, or you're going to have to take something off the calendar, uh, those were those moments in which we were making sense. But you were already at that point starting to make sense of it through an artistic project. Mm -hmm. Take us inside that process a little bit. Yeah, so I had that little lull of just kind of wrapping my head around uh, what were the basics that needed to be covered. Um, my husband's a dental provider, so there were some of the, what is his work gonna look like? Is he gonna be able to work? How much of a risk is that gonna pose our family? You know, like, um, I mean, medical environments in general are pretty, you know, right up top with all of the, you know, hand washing, sanitizing of everything. Um, but they couldn't find in 95 masks, which are pretty basic necessity right now for medical providers. So there was some stress on that front. Um, so while my brain was occupied with that, it was hard for me to figure out, like, how do I get back in the studio and do anything to the um, complexity of what I normally do because my brain space was just full. Um, but the repetitive and, and methodical kind of nature of stitching of any kind, whether it's embroidery, knitting, all uh, sewing on a sewing machine, all those things are things that I've done and do. And um, that kind of rhythm is very calming <laughs> for me. 
Um, and so I had had, I had gone to a, there's a, trying to think of what they're called now. Um, there's a, there's a upcoming burgeoning kind of, um, retail shop. It's like a thrift store, but for art materials and creative endeavors. There's one here, there's one in Denver, there's one where we lived in Oregon and like they're, they're popping up kind of all over the place, which is great. Um, and I had gone there and gotten, I'm trying to think it was a 10 to 12 foot long piece of cross stitching fabric. Cause it's really hard to find. And it's very expensive to buy in yardage amounts. So I had that sitting in my studio and I was literally drifting off to sleep one day and I forget who you talked to recently that had a very similar thing. They were like in bed and then the light bulb goes off kind of moment. Um, and it might've been somebody else's conversation, but I was like, what if I just start stitching the cases? Because this, this numbers, the data, the constant updates, like it doesn't, it doesn't mean something. It's too abstract. And so if I make it physical, if I take the time, hmm. that time element is really key to sit and, and, and just stitch it and make it a physical object um, that represents the numbers. I can connect that a little bit more readily with my, just conceptually. Hmm. So I started doing that. I had to backlog a little bit. January 20th was our first case reported in the States. Um, and there wasn't too much until we hit March. And that's when it kind of exploded. Um, hmm. This is not to scale. I mean, it's to scale, but not the size it actually is in the piece. But this is like the map of the first January to the beginning of March. Hmm. And I can't remember, but this, if this is, sorry, this is all backwards on my screen. <laughs> if this is one stitch, um, you know, by here, this is March 3rd. Um, so this is a blown up version of what was on the fabric. And then sometime in March, I got to the point where I couldn't stitch every single stitch. Once it gets over about a thousand, that's about the extent of what I can do in a day. That's kind of almost all I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I started stitching the outline of the area because cross-stitch fabric, which I have some here. I don't know if you can see, probably can't see it from there. I'll use this yeah, one. we can, we can see it. But it's gridded. Right. So it's really easy to do the math. <laughs> so so just, just so I'm clear, so then one stitch and cross stitch, it's basically you make a... It's an X. You make mm -hmm. an X. And you your idea was that each one of those would represent a life. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was doing... Representing, I'm representing cases with blue thread and deaths with red thread. Okay. And I think it was March... Second, yeah, March second, we had two deaths. I see. And so this would be a square of four. Golly, this is really hard to do on the screen. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, and so I it started really small, and I was like, okay, I can manage this. And then, really quickly, I couldn't. <laughs> At what point do you? So that's interesting because, um, so if I, I have a lot of questions about this. Uh, that so on the in. You wanted to represent it mm -hmm. because we are being inundated with these representations. And, and that, that problem is one we've talked a lot about on COVID calls. I'm fascinated that you're, you wanted to reinterpret that. There's also something very personal. I mean, you're laying hands on the fabric. In a sense, you're going through a motion 
mm-hmm. which leaves something material, but there's a physical right. part of it too. So there's mm-hmm. two things being produced kind of simultaneously in honor of each case and each life. Yeah, yeah, and that that physical, not only the that what I would call the artifact of the actual piece, but but the presence of the body and interacting with something physically, and and doing an actual gesture with your body is part of almost everything that I do. Like that physical reckoning with my physical body in space and in time is a central part that I'm realizing more and more (laughs) is part of my art practice, if you will. So the the fatigue sets in at what point? (laughs) You said, because you said at some point it pretty quickly, it got to be too much. Absolutely. So I was just kind of going along because I mean, it really gave me something to do to be honest, you know, like I couldn't do other things with my art practice because my brain just couldn't handle it. And my kids were home and I can't, I can't focus on um, like more linguistic uh, work that I do with my kids around because it's hard to keep a train of thought when, you know, someone's asking you a question every 20 to 30 minutes (laughs) Um, or more frequently. Um, and we don't have a big house, so bickering, all those little factors of being home um, with other people in your house at the same time. So it was, I think by the end of March, I realized, you know, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this on my own in my own house. Um, I had already stopped stitching all of the cases per day because I just couldn't do it and sleep and do anything else. And then probably pretty quickly after that, I haven't calculated the time, but, um, I wouldn't have been able to do it physically anyway, (laughs) um, given 24 hours in a day. And then, so I was just stitching the outline of the cases. I kept stitching the deaths until I think somewhere in April. Yeah. Um, and so once I got to the end of that for the first, so there's three panels and this is the first one up here. So if you can see down in here, like one, each of these, the the, um, scale of this is 14 stitches per inch. And so this panel goes through April 14th, 15th, and then it continues down on this one. Um, And so once I got to this point over here, I realized, okay, wow. There, I mean, there's, I don't even remember what we were at total at that point, but I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to complete all those stitches myself and pretty much do any other, <laughs> any other kind of artwork, which I mean, that would be okay, but that's not what I'm interested in doing. Um, not because I don't think it's worthwhile, but um, it just dawned on me that I could bring this to other people too, because it has been me- so meaningful and helpful for me during this time, maybe it'd be helpful for other people. And so it just started out by me bringing it out in my front yard <laughs> at yeah. a table and stitching with my neighbors. Yeah. So that's this right here. That's a couple of my neighbors. Whoop. Cannot get this video thing down. Okay, there we go. Well, you got it. That's great. So you just came out front, you set up the table, you had the materials. Yeah. And in terms of explaining it, I mean, you've obviously explained it a lot because it. I got it the first time. It, I mean, you're you're very clear in how you explain what you're doing. But did people ask that deeper question, 
like, why are you doing this? Or is that not something you've had to explain? I haven't had to explain it too much. I think pe once people realize like, okay, wow, this, this is a physical way of us acknowledging what's happening right now and being able to sit with it because it takes a while to even just make one stitch, you know? And so it's going to take a long time to complete all of the stitches. Like this might be something that's part of my life for the rest of my life, <laughs> possibly um, uh, in some shape or another. And so it then took on another level of this is a way to connect during this time and in a way that's safe because we could social distance while we were stitching because the panels are 10 to 15 feet long and so um i've only had people stitch on the one just because with how life works that's just what we've been able to do i don't have like 15 tables <laughs> to stretch it all out and take up the entire street i probably get in trouble for blocking the road <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so that that time of sitting together while we have a lot of kids on our street a lot of families so we just the parents would sit and stitch and the kids would run around and play sometimes the kids would come and make a stitch too learn how to cross stitch um i've done i think just one public stitching session at one of the museums here in town it's something i want to do more but I also have, you know, I don't want to expose people unnecessarily. Sure. I don't want to show up places and like, but, you know, have someone call the cops and be like, oh, this person's doing this thing. Like they don't need to be doing that right now. <laughs> There's other more important uh, things I need to be focusing on. And so I'm working on planning more times in the beginning of next year to be able to bring it more publicly and have bigger stitching sessions outside when it's nicer. And if there's big indoor spaces that are, big enough to have enough airflow and allowable space for multiple people. But um, yeah, just having time to sit together in a space that's safe, having this project right in front of you opens up time to, and, and just like, um, I don't know, it like kind of lowers the, what's the word? the stress of talking about it, I guess, yeah. about the situation that we're in, you know, we would talk about school and what are we going to do and how, you know, school might start up again in the fall. How are we going to negotiate that, you know, navigate that? Are we going to do pods? Are we going to whatever, you know, um, all these questions that are still, still hanging in the balance. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. And I had wanted to bring it, like I mentioned, that corner in Boulder with that intersection. I wanted to bring it there this summer and I hadn't quite figured out how to manage that if I was, cause you can't set up a table on a public sidewalk. It's, you know, not yeah. allowed. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't take the time, which I should have to figure out setting it up in a parking lot or something, but cause it would have been really interesting to see how that yeah. political impetus that was already present would have maybe, you know, been, different around a table mm. with a piece of fabric and a needle. I don't think that's going fabric. away. You'll probably no, get I don't think it is. I think we'll have plenty of time for that. So. <laughs>
me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today we're talking with artist Heather Schulte, who's the creator of the Stitching the Situation project, and hearing about how the project got going. And um, just to talk a little bit about the parameters again, I was really struck by what you said, Heather, that this may be a project you're working on for an awfully long time. If I've got you right, I mean, you you do want a stitch for every case, and you're using your color code. Um, for cases and then for deaths, I mean, as of now, if you were just to catch up, you'd have 78,437,021 cases. That's a lot of stitches. Um, and that's only now. So we're going to mm -hmm. be going into next year. Um, and I, I wonder too, I mean, just to come back to what you're talking about it as a, as a community experience. I have a lot of questions about that. One is, around how much time people spend with it when they do engage with the project. And I, I ask that because, you know, we've been so regimented into Zoom time and Zoom tells us our life occurs in 15 minute increments. And I guess we already sort of do that with our business calendars and things like that. But stitching time seems like maybe it's different somehow. You, you don't bound it in those, in those ways. You're talking about conversation, the flow of the street mm -hmm. and the making of the stitch which might order our time a little differently than um, the confines we've accepted this year. Sure, yeah, I mean, for me, just having the project always set up in my studio and in the first, what was it, maybe March, April, three months of the pandemic, not a, a, like from March, not from January um because i started it in march but the first three months of me working on the project having it always set up in my studio like i could come sit down and then if my kids needed something i could go and then i could come back so sometimes it would be five minutes sometimes it would be an hour sometimes it would be multiple hours you know of just sitting and stitching maybe listening to the podcast or you know sometimes watching tv just to get my mind off things for a little while um but with people out in public, you know, with on our street, if people had time, they would come and sit with me for 15 minutes. Sometimes it'd be an hour um, at the museum. I think I was there for a couple hours. Some people came just to see what it was. Some people took a kit home, which that's, we can talk about that in a minute. Um, and some people were there for the whole time. You know, it just, it varies. Um, and I think all but one person who was there took a kit home with them to work on a piece themselves. Mm. Um, and so it has this interesting aspect of, yeah, it's not a regimented time. It's like there's this concept of flow with art um, practice in general, whether it's writing, theater, you know, any of that, where you kind of get into this alternate headspace of not being so concerned about the clock, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the repetitive nature of stitch making, I feel really, uh, helps you get into that kind of headspace, if you will. Uh, what I'd like to do is show some of the images. You have a, mm -hmm. an Instagram account. Um, and you can find Stitching the Situation on Instagram. And I just want to show a few of these now. Uh, if StreamYard will cooperate here, which I think it will. Uh, yeah, there we go. So. Um, you've told us a little bit about your approach to 
to what the colors would mean, but then there's a lot more going on in, in some of this work in terms of use of language, in terms of numbers, in terms of images. So talk to us a little bit about these. Sure, yeah, so I showed this earlier. So this started out just as like, I had this piece of fabric and then I try to compact as much, like, you know, utilize that space as much as possible. I got to June, I think it was June 24th, 25th, something like that, where I got to the end of the piece of fabric that I had purchased to continue the project. And that was when we first started our second wave, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, I was stitching so much just to do the outlines that I was, I had a friend in Texas that had mentioned, hey, if there's any way that we can help, let me know if you can cut it up and send it. And that like just about, it just cringed <laughs> because you can't really cut this fabric up. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, which is yeah. fine. And so, yeah, that's another picture. That's the first panel. So this um, is a, so these outlines are each days, basically. Yes, they're and, each and they, days. And, they need, and you've stitched in the red is the number of deaths for that day. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of blue stitching that needs to come on board for people that were diagnosed on those days. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so once I got to June and I realized this was not going to be finished as soon as we had all hoped, um, I took my friend's uh, question and was like, well, what if we make this a project where people elsewhere can participate? And so I started making kits starting in June. Um, and let me see. I have one here. So basically each kit, which I'll show the, the layout. This is the one for September 4th. So each kit is a square, or more or less a square, which is the outline of the, the data for the day. So whatever the US total is for that day, uh, this one is about 50,000 stitches. And so that's all this area here, which will be filled in with blue stitches. And then the deaths are 965 for that day, which is this corner up here. And so this format for all the kits is pretty much standardized of a, basically a square with a little square in the corner with some over overage of, you know, the remainder, not a perfect square, but, and so I've been sending these all over the US. I think there's 22 or 23 states with people working on the project with a little bit of thread and needle and the fabric with the layout on it. Um, and so that first picture you showed was one of the kits that uh, I can't remember what day that was from. And so participants are invited to interpret their experience of COVID um, in their design with their kit. And that's the thing that I love about that is that everybody's different perspective comes into play in a way that I don't have control over, that I, that I can't dictate, that um, will hopefully, you know, bring about other perspectives that I might not be aware of myself, other people might not be aware of. Um, it allows for personal expression within a collaborative piece. Um, and the only, the only stipulations are sticking to the outline, mm -hmm. which is you know representative of the data for that day and the color, uh, color assignment, which is blues in the blue area and reds in the red area. It doesn't matter what value or hue. So you get, quite a lot of variety just within and, that. And are people trying to actually use the count? Like, so this one says, I love people that have no idea how wonderful they are and just wander around making the world a better place, which is tremendous sentiment and important. And then it has this this blue 
um, shape here at the top. Does that mean that the artist for this particular square has has counted up what was needed in terms of the stitches, and that's what they've uh, done here, or they've gone beyond those parameters because you've allowed them to to be creative, however they wish to be. So that is a block in progress. So okay. what's there is what they've stitched so far. So all mm -hmm. that white space ideally will be filled. I see. Um, at some point in the future. Okay. And that might be more words. It might be just colors. Um, I know this block here. Talk about this one. Um, she was inspired by the the nature that they were observing in and around their neighborhood, um, being you know at home with her family and children. This is my friend Dana's work um, in Nebraska, and so when you're when you're in a place, I mean, I think this is true for so many people who you know usually work outside the home, usually spend most of their time outside of the home except for when they're sleeping, you know? And so when you're in a place consistently for a longer amount of time, you start to notice things that you don't notice before. It might be as simple as, oh my gosh, that paint that's peeling on the wall in my room that I'm staring at every single day where my computer is, is driving me crazy. <laughs> and so you paint the wall, you know? Or you might notice, like we noticed, and a lot of people have noticed across the, the country, animals have shown up that we might not see usually because we're, driving more, we're flying more, we're, um, we're just more, uh, when you're, when you're more stationed at home or in one place, there's less, uh, disruption, I guess, in the natural environment. If you want to, I don't, I don't like yeah, those, absolutely. I don't like those strong categories of natural and unnatural. <laughs> That's a whole but other discussion, but, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, but this, this one is so attentive to and even what you said, and people are spent, we're spending, certainly this is true in April and May, more time in local um, uh, parks and, and, and also just paying more attention. I, I, had, I talked with naturalists earlier in the year, and they raised an interesting point from the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel. And they said, it may not be that there's more animals around. It's just you're, you have more time to listen to them and to be aware of their presence. Um, and so here we have birds, um, insects, and plant life and then also and you people might have missed this but in the top corner there that's the number of deaths for this day and I, and then in the blue box is the number of, of cases for that day yep so let me um show one more and this um this one we talked about briefly but let's talk a little bit about this one sure so um as I mentioned before, you know, I got to see my family in March and my uncle had moved into a veterans facility. Um, he was in the Navy uh, back in, I believe, the 70s. And so he had Parkinson's and was needing more assistance than my family could give him. And so he had moved into this facility. Um, yeah, it was in March. And so a couple weeks after I left, uh, we heard that there was a case reported in the facility, um, which would have been the very beginning of April, I believe. And he was tested a few weeks later when they finally had enough testing to test all the residents. Um, I think there were maybe 120. I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right. I have it somewhere, the actual specific numbers. But 75% at least of the residents of that facility contracted COVID. Um, in that one little time period of like a few weeks. 
And unfortunately, my uncle did not survive, and he died on April 13th. Um, and he was one of, I believe, about a quarter to a third of the residents of that facility that did not survive COVID. It was one of the earlier, um, I, you know, outbreaks in a facility, and it just, <laughs> yeah, it, we, my family hadn't been able to visit him uh, for the week or so prior. I think the week yeah. before he tested positive, they were able to bring him out to a courtyard because there was a courtyard, thankfully, that had a you know fence that was um, not solid brick or anything, so you could see and talk. Um, but so we had a really early experience of losing someone in these facilities that have been so hard hit um, between elderly homes and prisons and places where it's generally less common to be, you know, in direct contact with family members or friends or what have you um, frequently yeah. or as on, on a frequent basis without, you know, restrictions and, and stuff. Um, having that experience so early on of already having that kind of cutoff of relationship or very strict limitations because of the the fragility of the population in that facility. And then on top of that, having an outbreak and not being able to be there. And he tested positive on the 11th. He was having his stats uh, fluctuate in the morning of the 13th. And by the time he got to the hospital, they didn't even get, they didn't even get to the point where they were able to check him into the hospital. He passed away in the emergency, in the emergency room. And so like my family never got to see him. Um, and I hope that there was a staff member that was there with him. Um, I, I can't imagine working in a hospital right now, um, having to be that proxy for so many families. Um, and I, I really, really appreciate how hard the staff all across the country is working. Having had my own medical issues and been in hospital situations with staff and being so dependent upon them for care, um, this is just an added burden of a whole nother level. <laughs> Do you share the same last name with your uncle or? No, his last name is Glenn Bosky. So I went from one difficult to pronounce name <laughs> to yeah. a slightly yeah. better one. <laughs> <laughs> and so he tested positive on April 11th and, mm -hmm. then, and then how long did he did he struggle with it? Just, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was positive before that. Not exactly sure yeah. when he might have contracted it, because, right. um, yeah. But he died on the 13th. Oh, okay. So, and he would have been 70 the next weekend. So, yeah. I'm truly sorry for that, for you and for your family. Thank you. And, and you've, sh you've made something here, which is extraordinary. What was it like to make this this panel? It gave me time to think about him, and I mean, trigger not trigger warning. Uh, spoiler alert: If anyone has kids that's watching this with their children, my uncle always signed the tags on our Christmas gifts from Santa. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I figured it out. I recognized his handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> But he was also kind of like a Santa figure. Every Christmas, <clears throat> we'd always get a card from him, me and my brother. He never um, had children of his own. And 
to this, you know, Sally, this is the first Christmas that there won't be something under the tree from him. Um, Cause he continued that tradition with my kids and my cousin's kids. Um, yeah, he was just a very gentle soul, soft-spoken. Um, my husband jokes that it was hard for him to understand <laughs> what my uncle said because he had a pretty thick Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just words that in rural Alabama that are used that are not common in the Midwest. Yeah, <laughs> so sure. you'd have to have me translate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, he'd set up the trampoline every summer when we came to visit for my brother and I because we were the only grandkids for a long time. Um even after my grandmother passed when I was eight, he moved into her house and he would set the trampoline up every year for us, you know, mm-hmm. just a lovely man. He was a math teacher for over 30 years. So, yeah. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and talking today with Heather Schulte about the Stitching the Situation project. And we're just talking about her uncle Joe's life and about the artwork that she did to, help memorialize that and some of the other works that people have been contributing to this. So um, Heather, let's talk a little bit now about um, where you see this project fitting in because (laughs) there's so many um, really important uh, memorial projects underway right now. I've had a chance to talk to some of the people who who are making those. Joanna Hutchinson has been on, she talked about her uh, 100,000 Folds project. I talked with mother and daughter Catherine Puget and, and Madeline. I talked with Chris uh, Coker. I talked with John Cunningham of the National AIDS Memorial and the AIDS quilt, which some have talked about as a touchstone um, for textile projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a memorial moment in American history, unlike any uh, that I think we've actually ever really seen. What do you think is possible? I mean, you, what you've been describing up to now, it very much is about the craft and about the doing and the community that you've made around it. Take a step back for us and, and how do you think, how does this all add up to something larger about how we're remembering this moment and making sense of it? Sure, so, um... <laughs> This project for me has kind of evolved as the situation has evolved, right? So it started really simply, I can wrap my head around the numbers. I couldn't wrap my head around the numbers. I'm gonna make something. I can't keep making it comprehensively. It's too much. Now I don't even know if I'm gonna be able, ever to able <laughs> complete it myself. So I'm gonna offer it up to other people, not only because I can't do it, but because I recognize how important and meaningful it's been for me as part of um, dealing with the situation that we're in and also processing the grief, my own personal grief of losing my uncle. Um, and But there's all sorts of grief that's happening right now. There's all kinds of loss. Um, and a lot of that's not going to come back. So it's going to be permanent loss, even though right now it feels kind of uh, not unsubstantial, but just ambiguous, ambiguous loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are going to become more concrete in the future. And so having this project as a framework that is based on just numbers and the people, those people are also individuals of this huge thing, um, this huge situation. And so having a very simple method of 
red and blue thread mm -hmm. X's on a grid of a very simple layout gives a platform for people to bring their own grief, their own experience to it. And I hope my plan in the future is to travel with it um, to various places and bring the panels and have stitching workshops to where people can sit for as long as they need to, as long as they want to and stitch whatever they want to. Well, mostly whatever they want mostly. to, <laughs> mostly. Uh, um, and to be able to, to share in the processing of their grief because the grief of this situation is going to happen and it's going to be long. We're going to, it's going to take a long time to build whatever comes next, um, to recover. I don't even want to say recover the economy because there's a lot of things that were and are inequitable about the economy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but for people to rebuild their lives and rebuild their jobs and rebuild their families and, um, deal with the loss in their families and the way these things have been restructured without our consent or even possibly even our acknowledgement yet. Mm -hmm. um, there's things that we don't know that we've lost that we'll figure out eventually um, or realize. And so I have the panels and then I also have the kits and I'm not exactly sure how long I'm gonna keep making the kits. That's to, to be determined because with the numbers the way they are, I mean, this one is from November. This is just one day. And that's, it's big, like, it's huge. That's the size you need. Yeah. Yeah. This is 200 some thousand stitches. I mean, that's going to take at least a year to finish, you know, yeah. if not more. Yeah. Not that that's bad. I mean, part of this. That's that one I, day in November. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the loss is comprehensive. Like it's, it's so big. So it's going to take time and we're going to need to have and hold time mm -hmm. to be able to really do it justice. There's so many things in our country that we have just kind of like, okay, well that's past skip on moving along. Um, yeah. that we're still feeling the effects of the negative effects of because it's unrealized trauma. It's undealt with trauma. It's an injustice that hasn't been addressed. And so I would hope that this project could allow space to be able to address what we have lost and not only what we've lost, but also how some of those un, uh, undealt with inequities fueled mm -hmm. this to be so big in our country. There are so many things I love about this project and, and, just to talk about memorials for a second, you know, um, I, so I spend a lot of time thinking about memorials. And one of the things we've talked about this year on COVID calls is how people think a memorial process should work. You know, we have a general notion around the world in the United States that, you know, big events are memorialized on the National Mall in Washington. And, and there's a, 
an architectural jury and funds are raised and then it's built and then people go there. Um, and I've seen from all corners of the country and around the world this year that that, that model really is not, I mean, that may happen, mm -hmm. but that people are not comfortable waiting. Um, they're, it, they want participation on their own terms. We also, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, so even convening those processes would be, would be difficult. But then also what you were just saying to me is really crucial to this is that if we see the memorial, you know, as a physical thing, a, a, a monument of some kind that when it's over, then we can say, wow, really glad that's behind us. And, but if we, if we, when we take up your work, um, it's going to stretch out for some long period of time. But then by making it, there's also a, a form of therapy. It mm -hmm. feels like you didn't use that word. I use that word, but it's a, it's a form of, of processing. And like you said at the very beginning, that stitch is a pay, has a pace. So for some, it'll be faster. For most, it'll be slower. Feels to me exactly right. Like that's the pace we need to really do some deep thinking about how we ended up in this, in this situation. And I wanted to share one more thing with you, which I didn't tell you earlier, which is that um, I used to cross stitch <laughs> uh, when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And I learned it from my grandmother, grandmothers and my mother. It was very gendered. Uh, maybe it still is. Um, in large part, it is not not one hundred percent, but it also hasn't yeah. ever one hundred percent been but, gendered. But either. I loved it. I loved <laughs> yeah. doing it, and I'm and it always comes back to my mind this time of year because um, I made. I used to make. This is like when I was in second, third grade. I would make cross stitch Christmas ornaments. You stitch mm -hmm. a piece, a candle or Noel or something like that, and then you put it. They had little kits. You could put it behind a plastic. Yep. Thing and then you hang it on a tree. I guarantee you my mom has some of those somewhere. Oh, well, they're a lot of fun to do and the stitching uh -huh. itself is fun. And then at some point, if you're a young man in America in those days in the 1970s and 80s, you would be told by some older kid, like, hey, that's what girls do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, but I retained an interest in it. And it just made me, as, you, as you've been talking about this project, made me realize like this is yet another way we can we can build community and we can mm -hmm. also honor a deep history in this country of craft, mm -hmm. which has been um, circumscribed, I think, by sex, but it doesn't, shouldn't be. Right. Well, and especially textiles. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely an association with femininity, um, but that's pretty, a pretty short history if yeah. you look at textiles over the course of human history sure it's not yeah. true you know um one thing i love about textiles is a really primary like primal human technology you know it's like what language was one and textiles so it's like it kind of gives me goosebumps when i start thinking about it like oh it's cool that I, like i love that both the things that i'm really interested in have such a long human history and they have been co-opted for various ideologies over time and they have represented and meant different things over time, but they're ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you look at textile decoration over the centuries, there are plenty of artisans that were male that did embroidery in various countries. And a lot of it has to do with white Western culture for being fully honest. Um, and so, yeah, those are definitely parts of it, but it's also 
there's also this great community history of community around textile making, mm -hmm. whether it's women or a group, you know, of people harvesting a plant, processing the plant, weaving, you know, making the fiber into a string, making it into a cloth, decorating the cloth, what have you, you know, I mean, those are almost always community processes. Right. Um, whether it's like purposefully so to build community or not. So inherent yep. within the making of it is a communal process. And that's what John Cunningham of the National AIDS Fund, uh, Memorial shared with me that, um, that they'd learned over the time from when they first started that, Cleve Johns first started that, that you know, people were drawn together to uh, remember family members. And they were in some cases remembering them because there was so stig much stigma attached to AIDS, sometimes these panels would appear much later after people mm -hmm. had died, but that each one of them represented a moment in which there was a coming together of people, mm -hmm. which again, confounds our sort of normal idea of a memorial as a kind of an austere stone with names in it, which there's maybe a small group of artisans who come together to make, but this has, this is unbounded, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I have quotes that when my grandmother died, there were quilts that she and my great grandmother had pieced together. Some of them, like my aunts will look at it and my uncle look, oh, that was my, you know, Sunday shirt. That was my Sunday dress. <laughs> right, so, yeah, you know, exactly. it's like all these, yeah. it's a living, not living, but I mean, it's a historical document sure. that then my mom took these tops and quilted them into quilts for the family members after she passed. And so we have three generations of people embedded within the making of this quilt. Um, and, you know, representations of the people in the family through their clothing, this, you know, clothing that was next to their skin, worn on their body. So there's something about textiles that's very comforting and familiar. And we're all sitting in domestic spaces, you know, more than we usually are um, right now. So the, the, the material of textile makes a lot of sense to me. So... We're almost up on time. Uh, Heather, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how you see this um, project going on into the new year and how people can participate. How am I going to get my cross-stitch skills back, in other words? <laughs> so I have a website. It's stitchingthesituation.com. And on there, there are links to fill out a form to sign up to stitch a block if you'd like to. And like, when you sign up to stitch a block, it doesn't mean you have to complete the whole block yourself by yourself. You can include your family members, anyone who wants to, your family, sorry, your neighbors, coworkers. If you work in a space that would be really interested in doing one together, you know, you could break it up into a grid and everybody do a certain spot or however you want to interpret filling out the block is up to everybody else. That's what's great about it. You can make it yours. Um, I have received some grants, one's from the city of Boulder, one was from the Fiber Art Network, and I'm working on um, receiving, like applying for more funding to continue uh, supplying the materials to the public without cost. Um, I also have ha a GoFundMe on there that's been uh, funded from various participants. If you have the means to purchase a kit, I mean, not technically purchasing, but you're donating the cost of a kit, excuse me and uh, the postage to get it to you and then eventually back when you're done. That link is on there. There's instructional videos. There's a whole step-by-step. Um, -step. This is my little uh, practice block of, I have pictures step-by-step. -step. Here's how to fill it out or a way to fill it out. Um, what to include, 
all that kind of stuff. It's all there. Um, there's a Facebook page that just keeps updates. There's a map on the blog on the website that shows locations of where the stitchers are all over the US. Yeah. So if you're interested in getting together with people in your area, you can do that. Um, one of my next steps is to formulate an advisory panel. Um, and that'll be an application based. Like if anyone's super, super excited about this project and wants to help usher it into wherever it's going. Um, it's really important to me that, it, that it's a very representational panel because sadly COVID has followed the patterns of our history and impacted the, the people who are historically excluded from our history the most. So BIPOC cultures, indigenous cultures, those communities have been impacted at much higher rates than um, most of the white community. And so I, it's really, really, really important to me that that aspect of this is represented in this project. And in order for that to do that, as someone who is definitively white passing, even though I'm half Hispanic, <laughs> you can't tell if I'm looking at me or reading my name, um, and given the history of craft and the representational uh, issues within the craft world, I need help. <laughs> and to be able to check my own blind spots move, to move this project forward equitably. So that's gonna be coming up in probably the next month. I'll have an application on there for people to say, yes, I'd love to help. Um, yeah. Okay, so. If you're an organization that wants to host a stitching session once COVID is less crazy, all-encompassing restrictive, um, yeah, we'll be setting those up in the next year and probably for a while. <laughs> So just reminding people, you can go to stitchingthesituationalloneword.com and you can check out everything Heather was just talking about there. And also uh, upcoming will be opportunities to participate in a more, uh, in a deeper way about helping to shape the future of the project, as you said, sort of putting together a, uh, a steering panel that will um, mm -hmm. help, help do that. And um, I can't wait to get one and get to work. Um, and I hope other people will, will do that as well. And um, I'm just going to put this link back up here one more time so people can see it, stitchingthesituation.com. Heather, thanks for sharing this work with us. I think it's, uh, it's great what you're doing. And you're part of a community of people crafting memorial for us right now in real time across this country and around the world. We absolutely need it. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Just want to remind everybody you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, uh, except for the next uh, little bit of time here over the holidays. We're going to go on a short hiatus. So today is the last COVID call until January the 4th, and that's going to be a very special session. Please join me January 4th as we um, bring in the new year and hopefully a better year um, with this pandemic. I'll be talking with my father, Steve Knowles. So <laughs> please don't miss that one. I promise a lively, uh, interesting conversation on that day. And um, just once again, thank you, Heather, and stay healthy. We'll see you all on January the 4th. And so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and Happy Holidays to everyone.